Oh, can you feel it coming in the air tonight? That's right, it's a brand new episode of People Are Wild. I am your host, Smiley Face. No, seriously, that's the playa name that I was bestowed upon at Burning Man because this episode is going to require a little help from Scooby and the gang as we go into the world that is Burning Man. Sort of. Now, I know plenty of you have been waiting for my breakdown, my play-by-play of what happened at Burning Man this year, 2018. And I originally fully intended on giving you that in excruciatingly graphic details. But that was before I left. And now that I'm back and fully rebooted into the default setting that is real life, I'm off the playa. I'm out of the desert. And I realized something. There are some stories and experiences that I will hold on to on a personal level because I'm selfish like that. Ask any of my exes. No, don't do that. Well, if actually, if you could find any of my exes, go ahead and do it. I challenge you. Actually, now this sounds like it might be mildly incriminating myself. Actually, let's just move on. All right. Before the police come in and decide to raid my home and podcasting location that shall remain anonymous, let me go back to what I was originally talking about. So Burning Man was something that I had very little expectations going into with. And when I came out of it, I had a better view and appreciation for life and for the interpersonal connections that we form as we exist day to day going about this thing that we call life. Now, one might say that my hardened ER nurse exterior got softened around the edges. Well, actually, I don't really have a hardened ER nurse exterior, I hope. But the gratitude that was exhibited by the patients we took care of at Burning Man was something that I have never experienced before, and I think is very unique to that setting in terms of probably never being in an experience I'll have again outside of Burning Man. So it was a joy to work alongside medical professionals in this desert environment, in this wilderness setting, if you will. We were a mobile emergency room, but we had limited resources on what we could do. We were still operating as a pseudo hospital, clinic, ER, and oh yeah, you also are in the middle of the desert. See, we were able to take x-rays on site and have bedside ultrasound devices, but there was no ability to CAT scan anybody or much less do MRIs, and we had no operating rooms should a person need a higher level of care. And some people ended up needing that higher level of care. Whatever we couldn't do, we had to transfer out to the nearest facility that could, or at least would get them towards that path to another hospital, mostly in Reno, that can help this patient out. So just to back up a bit, geography-wise, and P.S., geography was never my strong suit. You would think after travel nursing for years, and before that, watching endless episodes of Where in the World is Carmen San Diego, that I'd have an encyclopedia knowledge of geography, but it turns out I don't. Not even for a second. So I don't really want to embarrass myself with my lack of awareness, but it is quite laughable how... Sadly, I just struggle with geography, so just know that. Also, did you guys know that they're remaking Carmen Sandiego for Netflix and Gina Rodriguez from Jane the Virgin is going to be Carmen? Talk about being alive in the best time period. We are all hashtag blessed. By the way, a further side note, you think if Carmen Sandiego and Where's Waldo had a kid, that kid would be the hide-and-seek world champion? Things to think about. Okay, get back into your mind frame. Let's go. Come on, Kim. You're here to do an episode about Burning Man. I should just warn you guys, there's going to be digressions and tangents flying everywhere because I have lit 
my beautiful Paris Hilton prayer candle. I would say it's hot. And side note, definitely saw her at Burning Man. More on that later. And I've listened to Michelle Branches everywhere on a loop repeat for about an hour now. So I am ready, if you're ready, to talk about how people are wild. Okay, so let me just preface all of this that I'm going to be talking about today specifically in this episode with a bit of a warning. So some of the subject matter might be graphic for some, might be triggering for others. And especially in lieu of Mac Miller's recent passing due to a suspected drug overdose, as well as seeing other celebrities such as Demi Lovato having a recent drug overdose, it's a topic that has permeated the media especially in more recent times. So please continue with listening at your own discretion. I'm going to be talking about overdoses and a little bit more about what that is and what we do in the ER and what we did at Burning Man and the differences between that. So just listen with your own discretion. Now, I realize that I could regale you all with tales of Burning Man, and there are a lot, but I've decided that some of the stories need to be adjusted accordingly in order to not violate HIPAA. Trust me, you will hear these stories in some manner along the course of future episodes. However, you won't know it. So, you're welcome. Question mark? With that out in the open, let me just get back into today's episode, today's meat and potatoes. Now, after coming back to reality, booting up my phone and catching up on social media, someone did ask me an interesting question that really sparked today's episode. How do you handle drug overdoses in a desert setting? How did you guys do that at Burning Man? So perhaps it is best to channel Little John and the Eastside Boys, with a Z, their timeless hit, Get Low, and go ahead and back, back, back it up. Jury's still out on stopping and wiggling with it. So let me try to explain as best as I can, without making things too confusing, how an ER is set up in the middle of the desert for a temporary city of about 80,000 residents. And it's temporary as in being populated for about a week and a half. So I'm going to lift a majority of the description and some of the behind the scenes because it's actually so well written. I'm just going to take it from an EMS one article that I found, and I will make sure to link to that in the show notes so you can take a peek at some of the pictures. It's based off of previous years that they've done the ER setup, but it holds up pretty true. And I'll make sure to kind of delve into the differences about our setup this year. So shout out once again to those peeps in emergency services, you are always the real MVPs. You see things on site, first responders, and you guys are just amazing. Okay. Every August during Burning Man, a week-long art festival rave campout hybrid, and actually they don't really like you to say rave. It hasn't been a rave technically since 1996, apparently. So Black Rock City rises up from a dry lake bed in the Nevada desert, 120 miles north of Reno. This year, about 80,000 people made the pilgrimage in RVs and cars brimming with tents, food, costumes, bicycles, and pyrotechnic paraphernalia, as well as other paraphernalia, if you catch my drift, temporarily turning Black Rock City into the state's third largest city. It's that big. Temporary city dwellers that all filter in and out over a course of a week or so create this amazing community. And it is the coolest thing to see from the air. Trust me on that. 
Now, for Burning Man attendees, also known as burners, the event is about participating in a community where self-expression rules, where nothing can be bought or sold. Money doesn't really exist out here, except for when you need to buy ice or coffee. And surprisingly, there's no litter. Leave No Trace is in full effect, so there's really no need for modern trash cans, if you will. And by the way, porter potties are not trash cans, you guys. You can't just put your stuff in there. Porter potties, well, just imagine porter potties in a hot desert over the course of 10 days. They do get changed out, but just put that into your brain and then maybe go to the bathroom because you'll probably want to throw up from that image. Anyways, just try the smell. Just try the smell. Maybe not. Don't try the smell. Now for the community of EMTs, paramedics, nurses, medical students, residents, physicians, all of the above, who converge on the site every year to provide emergency response and urgent care, Burning Man is our own little form of utopia. You see, this is where healthcare can exist with no billing and no politics, and in which medical providers from EMTs to physicians work side by side all the way through, unencumbered by many of the confines of typical hospital systems. So just let me tell you, and I say this with a huge smile on my face, this was the best type of healthcare to give and I worked alongside the best healthcare providers I ever have. Everyone was so happy to be there, myself included, in order to help out your fellow burners, your fellow residents, my family. And you helped these people to feel better and to stay on the playa without having to leave Burning Man. You don't want to leave the playa. You don't want to leave BRC. You don't want to leave your family. And even if you did need to do medical evacuation or get a transfer to another facility, the healthcare provided up until that transfer is never billed. So you end up with people who are truly grateful for the care they receive, and you have people returning regularly being compliant with things as directed, especially medications, if they were told to receive them. So mostly we would be giving out antibiotics. P.S. The stories I have acquired about UTIs will be filling their own episode. Trust me on that. And we also administered a lot of eye drops. That playa dust is a relentless beast. I would not wish it upon my worst enemy. This was unlike anything I have ever experienced, anything that I've ever been involved with of healthcare. And it was really something truly unique that was hard to put into words, clearly. So you might be asking yourself, how did this even come to be? How do you accomplish this? And if you're a burner who needs medical aid from us, you might be asking yourself, well, how did I get here? So this year, Rampart, which is the name for the mobile ER in the desert, was a bit different than it was in previous years, but the mission remained the same. Provide top-notch medical care and assistance to all burners of Black Rock City. However, don't let the dust on the floor fool you. Rampart is the cornerstone of a sophisticated emergency medical system with cutting-edge goals that mirror some of the leading ideas in healthcare reform, community paramedicine, and mobile integrated healthcare. Ooh, that's fun. Now at Rampart, when possible, patients are treated on-site and not transferred to outside hospitals such as in Reno. EMT, medics, nurses, we actually were all empowered to practice our scope of practice to our fullest abilities within our licensing and credentialing uh, that would allow us, which means that 
there are some things that I got to do from start to finish on a patient that I would run by a doc real quick and then he would nod and that patient would be able to go. So they really trusted your judgment and you got to really be involved with your patient care along with creating this team approach as well. And let me tell you, they're probably the shortest wait times that you will ever see in an emergency room. From check-in to discharge for urgent care patients, we strive to minimize all the wait times and maximize patient satisfaction. However, and this might be something that is music to some of your ears out there, we don't necessarily have to give patient satisfaction surveys. What a beautiful thing. And actually, we probably don't have to do it because the patients just give you a hug. So you know that they have gotten good care. And oh yeah, these patients, again, get it all for free. It's part of the price of admission. So Tickets to Burning Man are somewhat infamous for being really expensive, but it's for a good reason. The organization uses some of it to fund medical care and other emergency response. So this year, though, was a little bit different from what they've had in previous years. It was a bit of a mash setup, if you will, and I'm not talking about the game that frustrated me so much because I always ended up living in a shack with my soulmate, quote unquote. I'm not angry. I'm not petty. I'm just bitter. Actually, I never orchestrated that game. I always just wound up playing it by chance because some other person was doing it for everybody at lunch. And I always ended up in the damn shack. So I think it's rigged. But the mash that I'm actually more talking about to get a better picture in your head is the one that's reminiscent of Alan Alda's Hawkeye Pierce, the best sitcom about medicine during war, I suppose, MASH, which stood for Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. So if you think about practicing medicine in tents, sort of like in that movie Contagion, you know, the one where Gwyneth Paltrow basically ruins the whole entire world. No, seriously, watch that movie and see how she screws over the whole world. I'm just telling you guys two words, patient zero, and it's Gwyneth Paltrow. Spoiler alert. Anyways, three more words, wash your hands and also don't touch your face. So when you're doing medicine or providing healthcare in a remote, rural, or wilderness setting, and yes, the dry desert alkaline lake bed of Black Rock City counts as wilderness, you have to have some sort of order to it. So we had two mobile setups in tents that were divided into an urgent care setting and then a more intermediate care setting. And then we had this really sweet trailer that had amazing rooftop access to see across the whole playa, amazing at sunset, amazing at sunrise, amazing amazing when the man burned and the temple. So it was used for more critical care patients. And because the lighting was better in there, we would sometimes take up people who needed a closer look at things. Dot, dot, dot. Now, Tyra Banks knows all about how lighting can make or break your day. After all, you need to make it ho, but fashion and smize with your eyes. So the importance of lighting is definitely paramount when you're trying to see a cut or trying to see if things are stuck where. Now in the trailer, it had the capabilities to monitor patients with more comprehensive devices, as well as giving us a place to sedate and intubate any patients who required that intervention. Now, if you bought yourself a tube and ended up intubated, as we so lovingly say, you also probably bought a trip to Reno because we didn't have the proper resources to manage a patient in that state on a long-term level. So being a nurse out at Black Rock City, this is my first burn, I 
felt this sense of freedom to actually practice my medical training. I didn't necessarily have to worry about sitting down and charting meticulously about little things. I was actually encouraged to be independent and critically think, and I didn't have the gaze or bearing down of administration constantly upon me. So it was fantastic. And it showed in the care that we were able to provide because Everybody was just happy to be there and happy to help out their fellow burners. So when you combine scorching temperatures, higher elevations for some people, dust storms, and copious amounts of alcohol and psychotropic drugs, there's plenty for a medical team to see and treat. And there are lots of stories that creep out from that. Now, common ailments this year I mentioned before were UTIs as well as eye irritation. You see the playa dust, it leaves the city shrouded in like this otherworldly chalky haze. In fact, it's called a whiteout. And sometimes if you're driving in a whiteout, you can't. You have to stop. And if you're out on the playa or you're trying to get into the playa and into the city, you can't. They'll close down gate access because it's not safe. But it does make for those cool pictures that you probably see on Insta if you search hashtag Burning Man 2K18. Whiteouts are also the reason why you end up seeing on those Instagram pictures people who are wearing goggles and buffs or masks. It's due to the fact that, well... For some people, it's more for fashion, but also it, it has a practical use. During a whiteout, you literally can't even see your hand in front of your face if you don't have some sort of eye protection. And with the dust blowing around, you need some sort of buffer in order to be able to breathe without breathing too much of that very, very fine dust and particulates. So the eyewear and the mask are a must for any burner. Now remember though that the dust is highly an alkaline driven dust. And that leads to a well-known burning man affliction, the dreaded playa foot. And that's when the skin on the feet crack. We actually didn't see too much of that, but sometimes you would see people with wrapped up fingers. And in fact, looking at my own nail beds, it seems like two weeks was the appropriate amount of time to recover my own playa hands. So Imagine this though, or maybe not, everybody is nearly nude, but they keep their boots on because that's how bad playa foot can ruin your burn. And to be honest with you, in the charting, I would say Black Rock City is the only place I know of on this whole entire planet where playa foot is an actual medical diagnosis. And that is 100% legit confirmed. So it was not unusual to see people, again, wrapped fingers due to the cracked skin that was on their hands. We actually had some people who came in with a lesser known skin condition called playa butt, and I will let you fill in the blanks on that. By the way, writing my notes on this, I started thinking about, for some reason, Billy Blanks. I don't know, I'm just laughing about it now, but um, I started thinking about Billy Blanks, like the guy who made Tybo a thing. And I don't know if I'm dating myself with both Tybo and the sentence I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it. I still own two VHS instructional tapes of Billy Blanks' Tybo. And I don't know if anybody who is younger than the age of like 18 who listens can decipher that sentence. But if you can, kudos to you. And I'm not as old as you think I am, but I am old enough to know that Tybo changed my life. Thank you. And I also still do have a VHS player in my home base because of of course I do. I live in the 90s. It never ended for me. Anyways, for some reason, I kept thinking about how awful a time Billy Blanks would have at Burning Man. I don't know why. And just this image of Billy Blanks in the hot sun doing Tybo classes to give to the playa because you give like 
either service or you do something in, in order to provide for the city. And I just thought Billy Planks would be so miserable out here in the Nevada desert doing typo classes. And I'm just, I can't, I'm sorry. Like that image, I don't know why it's so funny. And I don't know why it popped into my head, but just like Billy Blanks with like his Tybo trying to do it in the Playa Desert and like a whiteout comes in and just covers him in like this fine, like uh Playa dust because it got on everything. My poor van, you guys, my minivan. I just, I get emotional about it because of how much dust I've had to get out of it. But uh Billy Blanks in the hot sun doing Tybo classes. That sounds like a card, like uh, something you would write for like a Cards Against Humanity thing. Or maybe it's like a, a Mad Libs thing, like Billy Blanks in the hot sun doing Tybo classes at Burning Man. I don't know. Where are you these days, Billy Blanks? The world needs you. I think half of our problems could be solved by Tybo. Okay, wait, I have to continue back onto this program. Oh my gosh, I told you the digressions and tangents. They're just, they're gone. They are, where are they? I don't know. If you see them, bring them back. Okay, sorry. I have had so much LaCroix today. I don't know why that's worth mentioning, but I, I feel like I should. Though it exists only for one week a year, Black Rock City does organize its city services and emergency response, much like other municipalities in cities. So BRC is a true city, though it's very unique and unusual and unlike anything you'll ever experience anywhere else. There's an airport, a Department of Public Works, and a DMV, but it stands for Department of Mutant Vehicles. And that's the department that can allow cars to actually be driven on the playa. These cars are usually decked out and kind of look a little Mad Maxi. Those are the art cars, and they like to roam the city and the deep playa, and they take people up there, and you get to just kind of have this once in a lifetime, well, maybe not once in a lifetime, you get to have this unique perspective of the playa that's different than if you rode your bike out there or if you walked out there. There was actually this one art car this year that looked a lot like the Scrubbing Bubbles. In fact, I think it was. The other thing with Burning Man is that you don't have any affiliations with things, so there's no labels and logos in terms of that. You don't really want to be associated or sponsored, if you will, so you try and minimize that. So that's why I say it looked like a Scrubbing Bubbles-inspired art car. It was really one. It was one. But you can't really say that. A lot of things are homages or parodies of different things. Now, there was one that shot fire, and it literally looked like something out of Mad Max Fury Row. All it was missing was Tom Hardy. And honestly, if Tom Hardy was out there, uh, nobody would really know because he would just look like another burner. Yeah, Skrillex was out there. He did a set, and it was, I heard, pretty awesome. I think I was working that night. Uh, but I did mention her before. Paris Hilton is one of the veteran burners. She has gone to numerous burns and she does do DJ sets. She will play surprise sets in the deep playa. Yes, this is all 100% true, especially if you haven't known what Paris Hilton's been up to since The Simple Life. I know that I'm blowing your mind. Like your brain is just, it's firing off so many neurons trying to process this. But yes, Paris Hilton is a veteran burner and she is a DJ now and she goes to Burning Man every year. And yes, I did see her. Years of watching The Simple Life myself allowed me to spot her immediately by a few of her mannerisms. And let me just say, she seems like a very nice person because... I mean, she's around her Byrne family, and it's just a completely different vibe in terms of just really connecting with people. So 
celebrities, like I said, if you look up on Instagram, there's a few, I think, Victoria's Secret models that were out there. Paris Hilton was out there. A few actresses were out there. Katy Perry goes out there a lot. Susan Sarandon used to go out there. I don't think she went this year. I don't know if she was fighting with Deborah Messing still at that time. I know that's like a thing, apparently, right now at the time of this recording. But Twitter is so weird that I'm sure this will be like outdated when this comes out on Monday. I think one of the girls from The Vampire Diaries, sorry kids, I don't watch that show, and some more well-known DJs were also out there. So it was kind of interesting because in the Playa Dust, you were all just a family and you're a community. Now, it should be mentioned that most large festivals, such as, you know, your big festivals like Firefly and Lollapalooza and Coachella, they're plugged into the local emergency services and they make sure that with dispatch and everything that it's being run through the surrounding areas. But Burning Man actually has its own emergency services and its own emergency dispatch center that is actually staffed by a few dispatchers and a supervisor. And they are all in a trailer just outside of the main medical EMS camp. There is also fire protection on on the ground. And this is a critical service with all of the burns and fire breathing and pyrotechnics that go on like every hour during Burning Man. And this is a service that is provided by Burning Man's own fire department, which is made up mostly of firefighters who are volunteers to work the event. Law enforcement is handled by the Bureau of Land Management Rangers. We love the BLM. The Black Rock Rangers are amazing. And they also are joined with the Parishing County Sheriff's Burning Man substation. So they are all on site. And this was something that I really, really grew to appreciate. I did a little research just about the medical side before going there. And I read about this service that was offered, but to actually see it set up and how they handled things at Burning Man, I just, I was floored by how amazing this is. And that is, there are mental health services at Burning Man. And these are professionals who are dispatched to retrieve people having drug-induced or sometimes just overwhelmed by Burning Man. And they might have a mental health crisis. So, Big shout out to the fantastic, with a capital F, peeps of Zendo. Uh, sometimes there are different entities that do this service at Burning Man. This last year it was Zendo. And their associated personnel and staff, we can't thank them enough. I'm going to try to, but it still wouldn't be enough. They created this optimal safe space for anyone who needed it for any reason. And they were there the whole time. So the whole experience of Burning Man can be overwhelming with or without chemical enhancements on board for anyone. Big thank you for existing, Zendo. Now, speaking of chemical enhancements, how's that for a segue? I'm going to try and circle back to the inspiration for this episode. How do you take care of overdoses in a remote medical setting amongst a population of tens of thousands of people? Well, lots of patients we saw either drank too much booze and or took too much drugs in a short-ish amount of time. Although time doesn't really exist at Burning Man. Watches, I don't know her. And just as a PSA, maintaining hydration does not include drinking booze consistently, constantly, and exclusively over the course of a whole week. So let's go into overdoses just a little bit better, as it was basically the bulk of what we saw at Burning Man in the medical side of things. That and UTIs kind of dominated also our landscape. Oh, urinary tract infections. Just as a disclaimer, ladies, if you're going to have sex in the desert, 
make sure you pee afterwards or else you're going to become a burning woman. Can't take credit for it. Somebody on Twitter who is a little bit more quick than I am made that joke. You know who you are. You're awesome. It's a perfectly placed joke. I love it. I love it. Okay, back on track and armed with some info from some reputable sources... Yeah, because we have reputable sources on this program. It's time to explain a little bit about what an overdose is. Drug overdoses can be accidental or intentional. They occur when a person takes more than the medically recommended dose of something. However, some people may be more sensitive to certain medications, so even the low end of a drug may end up being toxic for them. However, a dose that is still within the range of acceptable medical use can also be too much for a person to handle. Now, this is especially true in kids and our older adults. But accidental drug overdoses happen quite a bit. So in the hospital settings, we see it when people accidentally double or triple up on something like their insulin or blood pressure medicine completely by accident. And maybe it should be noted right here that for the sake of this episode, I'm going to be talking more about club drugs and some of their friends because that's really what we saw at Burning Man. So illicit drugs used to get high and possibly reach nirvana or at least see out of a third eye. Where is my third eye? I don't know. May be taken in overdose amounts when a person's metabolism cannot detoxify the drug fast enough to avoid unintended side effects. So whenever you're still going hard and you're clubbing and you're puking and rallying, whatever the hell you call it, you're stressing out your already chemically enhanced system into doing something beyond its normal capabilities. And at some point, your body can only do one thing, crash. Preferably not crash into me. A Dave Matthews band reference. I just, I don't even know what I just did. This last week, I've been thinking about Dave Matthews band. I don't even like Dave Matthews band. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna throw that out there. I do not like Dave Matthews Band. And I shared this very recently on Twitter, but I'm going to repeat it right here. I found out one of my friends who I've known for like years, almost two decades. I found out that my friend makes a cake for Dave Matthews on his birthday every year and has done so for like the past like 10 to 15 years. She she doesn't mail it to him. She She's gone to his concerts a lot. Like she's done, I think, a summer where she just followed them on tour. I don't know. I just kind of discovered this not too long ago. It's been very jarring to me. I'm bringing it up here. Is this grounds for a friend voice? Let me know. Weigh in on that, please. Again, I digress. Exposure to chemicals, plants, and other toxic substances that can cause harm are called poisonings. Now, the higher the dose or the longer the exposure, the worse the poisoning is. Two examples that come to mind kind of quick are carbon monoxide poisoning and shrooms. Luckily at Burning Man, the mushrooms that everybody had on them just produced psychedelic trips, man, and not horrible poisonings. At least as far as I know, there weren't any bad batches of anything. Although every time I read about mushrooms, I think about the King of the Hill episode where Dale and Bill rent a pig to hunt out truffles, oh, with Boomhauer, and the pig ends up eating a psychedelic mushroom by accident, and then they have to babysit the pig while it goes and it like trips hardcore. And side note, I have a theory that one of the best ways to get through a trip is to have good friends who will look out for you. Okay, make sure you got good friends. The way I see it, if more patients had better friends to help them to get through a bad trip, they probably wouldn't end up visiting us in the emergency room. Now, people respond differently to a drug overdose, and treatment is therefore tailored to that individual's needs. Drug overdoses can involve people of any age. It is most common in very young children, 
we're talking people that are little beings that crawl to about the age of five, as well as common among teenagers to those in their mid-30s. Young kids may swallow drugs by accident because of their curiosity about medications they may find, uh, especially with kids that are younger than the age of five. They tend to explore the world by placing everything they find into their mouths, and drug overdoses in this age group are generally caused when someone accidentally leaves a medication within a child's reach. Toddlers, when they find medications, often share them with other kids. So if you suspect an overdose in one toddler-aged child while other kids are around, those other kids may have taken the medication too. Sharing is caring, except when it's medication and you're a toddler. It's probably not caring, and it's probably not good. Now, drugs have effect on the entire body. I feel like I'm giving a dare lecture right now, but it's going to be cooler, guys. It's probably not. Generally in an overdose, the effects of the drug may be a heightened level of the therapeutic effects seen with regular use. In overdose, side effects do become more pronounced and other effects can take place, which would not occur with normal use. Large overdoses of some medications can cause only minimal effects, while smaller overdoses of other medicines can cause severe effects and even coma or death. A single dose of some medications can be lethal to a young child, and some overdoses may worsen a person's chronic disease. For example, an asthma attack or chest pains may be triggered by a drug overdose. Some more things to keep in mind. Problems with vital signs, such as your temperature, pulse, respiratory rate, and blood pressure, are possible and can be life-threatening. Vital signs can be increased, decreased, or completely absent. Sleepiness, confusion, and sometimes even coma are accompanied with an overdose and can be dangerous if the person breathes vomit into the lungs. Now, it's hard to think that a person wouldn't be able to know to vomit off to the side into a bucket or toilet. When a person overdoses on a medication or drug, they're not in their normal frame of mind, their normal conscious baseline state of being. And it's one of our main concerns in the hospital and the ER setting in terms of maintaining an open and clear airway for a patient. Now, I have had to change out my scrubs a few times due to a patient vomiting in my general direction. I take it as a compliment. Not really. It's amazing what doesn't faze me that much as I continue to experience and practice in this profession. Now, skin can be cool and sweaty or hot and dry, and chest pain is possible and can be caused by heart or lung damage. Shortness of breath also may occur, and with that, breathing might actually get rapid, slow, deep, or shallow, or stop altogether. Abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea are possible. Vomiting blood or blood and bowel movements can be life-threatening. So here's another PSA. Blood in anyone's vomit or in their stool is not a good sign. So please go and seek medical help as soon as possible if this is happening to you or a loved one. This show does not give medical advice, but I'm just going to tell you that if blood is coming out of your butt or out of your throw up, you should probably see somebody about that. I don't know why I can't stress that one enough. Blood just does not belong in vomit or your stool. And specific drugs can damage specific organs, depending on the drug. They are processed in different ways and can cause long-term damage on those organs. So let's say a person has overdosed on some drug and they're not responding to anyone or anything. Their friends are frantic, they call out their name and the person doesn't respond and they are freaking out. Time to get some medical help. Time to call 911. EMS arrives on scene 
and they're able to stabilize the patient enough to get them transported to us in the emergency room in the hospital. In the hospital setting, I will tell you a little bit about what is happening. In the emergency room, when a person comes in due to an overdose, there's a bit of a protocol of sorts that you start to do. But the best and the most important thing we do is to look at the person, look at the patient. If someone reports that a patient is overdosed on something, we need to look at their overall appearance right from the jump. Is this person even awake? Are they able to breathe on their own? Do they need help or support in maintaining their airway? How responsive is this patient? And we get this information sometimes about the background and what happened from bystanders, friends, family members. Sometimes Poison Control Center has already been called prior to a patient's arrival and they keep in contact with us and we keep them updated and their input is highly valuable and a part of that patient's plan of care. Actually, in the hospital, whenever anyone comes in with an overdose or an accidental ingestion or poisoning, Poison Control is immediately contacted and they offer their suggestions for plan of care and management, as well as continuing to call throughout that patient's stay in order to gain updates about the patient's condition while that person is being treated by us. So development of any symptoms after a drug overdose requires immediate and accurate information about the specific name of the drug, the amount of the drug ingested, and the time when the drug was taken. So oftentimes, EMS will come in and they will give us the bottles that the drug came in in order for us to get a better picture of the dosage and how much was maybe left and how much this patient took. We also rely on those bystanders, those friends, those family members who come in with the patient or at least contact us in some way in a very timely manner, we hope, to give us information or backstories about what was going on and what this patient might have taken. Treatment is dictated by that specific drug taken in the overdose. Certain medications will only work to help out certain drug overdoses. So information that is again provided about the amount, the time, and the underlying medical problems that this patient also might have become invaluable. Course of treatment options in the hospital emergency room with an ingestion, with an overdose, include a few different things. So this one was something that I remember using a lot when I was first starting out in nursing, but I've seen hospitals get away from it. And the one website that I saw, it actually said that this is a rare mode of treatment. So uh, maybe I was just at a hospital that was a little old school. It happens. Now, this method that I'm talking about is something that you probably think is synonymous with overdoses if you're of a certain age, and that is having your stomach pumped. This actually is something that I have had to do for a few patients. I have had to do gastric lavage, which is the technical term for pumping a stomach, to try and mechanically remove unabsorbed drugs from the stomach. Now, here's the thing. It was a mess. It's just, it's, it's a traumatic thing to try and initiate on a patient. It's a disaster. Actually, it's not even a mess. It is just a straight up disaster. And you really don't see it used as often as a, it once was in the emergency room, but it is still used. If you are so inclined to um, look up how gastric lavage works, go for it. I would rather not have to do that. 
Now, activated charcoal may be given to help bind drugs and keep them in the stomach and intestines in order for it to leave the body. And this will reduce the amount that is actually absorbed in the body. The drug bound to the charcoal is expelled in the stool. So oftentimes a sort of stimulant is given with the charcoal so that the person uh, more quickly evacuates the stool from their bowels. So you kind of give them something to make them poop faster, I guess is the best way of saying it. But I wanted to use all the technical terms because this is Medically Accurate Entertainment Podcast. Medutainment Mondays. So this is what we give more often in the ER. Although I did have this one experience where I pumped a patient's stomach with charcoal and water upon a doctor's orders. And it was only one time that we did that. So it was interesting because I was like, this is like a stop and collaborate and listen moment. Like we are mixing together things. This is a mashup of treatments. And the patient, I, I'm sure, didn't really grasp the, the fun, I guess I was having. I wasn't having fun with it, actually. I hated it um, because charcoal coming out the other end through your mouth, it's not cute. In fact, activated charcoal you might have heard about it if you're on Instagram a lot, is what you see advertised by every quote-unquote Instagram celeb in an attempt to whiten your teeth. So don't ingest that stuff. Just don't do it. It could have like tiger's blood in it for all we know. Don't try and like swallow it. Don't, don't do that. If somebody overdoses in your immediate vicinity, please call 911. Don't try and shove like activated charcoal toothpaste in there to try and help them out, just call 911. Please make me that promise. Thank you. Now, sometimes people who have drug overdoses do not necessarily arrive in a state of unresponsive unconscious. They actually arrived a little bit more revved up, if you will. And so agitated or violent people may need some sort of restraint. And sometimes that can be some sedatives in order for us in the emergency room to safely and effectively assess them until the effects of those drugs can wear off and we can actually talk to them. Now, this can be unbelievably disturbing and graphic for a person to experience and for a friend or family member to witness. Please note that we go to great lengths to use only as much restraint and as much medication that is medically necessary for that situation. So it is important to remember that whatever we are doing as healthcare providers, it is always based out of protecting that patient that's being treated. But also when somebody comes in agitated or violent, they are now a danger to themselves to get hurt and they could become a danger to others. So we need to make sure that that person is in a safe environment. And sometimes you do have to give a medication to that patient in order to accomplish that. Sometimes you actually have to end up intubating. You put a tube down into their throat and it helps them to breathe. It is placed in their airway so that the doctor can help again to protect that patient's lungs, to protect their airway, and to help that person breathe during that detoxification process. And this does happen in the emergency room. And lucky for us, we actually have the capabilities of intubating people who were in a highly agitated and uh, aggressive state from an overdose, we were able to have the ability to intubate them and to sedate them and relax them while the drug works its way out. And if, again, they did end up needing that intervention, they also needed to be medically evacuated because we couldn't manage that after we initiated it. But we were able to. So it was good that we were able to initiate it. I think I said initiate with like five ends. 
previously, so I don't know what happened. Now, for certain overdoses, other medicine may need to be given either to serve as an antidote to reverse the effects of what was taken or to prevent even more harm from the drug that was initially taken. Ever heard of a medication called Narcan? Sure you have. And maybe if you've read the news a few months back, you'll have read that they gave it to Demi Lovato when she was found unresponsive after her overdose. Or if you've actually watched um, Live PD or Cops. Yeah, I think uh, Cops uses it a few times in a few of their newer episodes. Law enforcement has been able to give Narcan while they call for emergency medical services for people that they happen upon. So Narcan is a reversal drug used for the complete or partial reversal of suspected or known acute opioid overdose. Opioids include heroin and prescription pain pills like morphine, Dilaudid, codeine, oxycodone, methadone, and Vicodin. When a person is overdosing on an opioid, their breathing can slow down or even stop altogether, and it could be very hard to wake them up from this state of unconscious unresponsive. So in comes Narcan. And this is a medicine that blocks the effects of opioids and then in turn reverses that overdose. It cannot be used to get a person high. And if given to a person who is not taking an opioid, it doesn't have any effect on them because there is no opioid overdose to reverse. So it doesn't necessarily hurt them. So that's why sometimes people that come in unresponsive or unconscious, you will hear that sometimes they tried Narcan in the field. It's a good place to start because if it is an opioid overdose, it's going to help reverse it. If it's not an opioid overdose, it's not going to hurt that patient to try it. So when someone isn't responsive and the Narcan helps a little bit, it does take a few doses before that patient can actually have a more full reversal of that opioid overdose. But we have literally saved people's lives out in the field prior to them arriving to the ER, thanks to our incredible law enforcement who are trained to give it, as well as our incredible emergency services, such as EMTs and paramedics who also trained to give it. Now, when they get to us in the ER and their life has been saved and they're able to breathe and they're sitting upright and they're talking when about 15 minutes ago, they didn't have a pulse. They like to do something that I will need to revisit, especially uh, Narcan in general, this topic in the future. And it's something that blows my mind, but you can almost just call it right from the door. They sign out against medical advice. So in the ER, after we give patients who were, again, dead, and they wake up and they take a breath and they're all alert and we have reversed their opioid overdose, they get to us pissed off and wanting to leave. If there is no outside or other reason to keep a person there and they are awake and they are alert and they are able to talk to us and they are within the normal state of being and their right mind and they're at their baseline, they can sign themselves out against medical advice, leave the emergency room and go right back out and use their drug of choice again because Narcan, it kills their high and killing their high makes them breathe again. So Narcan saves lives, but it makes people pissed because it works. And like I said, that is another topic for another episode. Already writing that down on my topic list. By the way, I have worked in some states that have Narcan administration classes at the local YMCA for non-medical people to learn how to safely and properly administer it to a person that is suspected of having an opioid overdose. I think it's a great initiative in cities where the opioid epidemic is decimating their populations every single day. So it's nice because it's kind of like 
when you know how to use an EpiPen for somebody, you have this really amazing role in helping to save a person's life as a concerned non-medical citizen. And it gives a person a window of opportunity to give them that extra time to call 911, to be coached on rescue breathing, um, and to initiate first aid until emergency medical help can arrive on scene for these opioid overdoses. So it's it's kind of a, a great thing. It also is a little bit heartbreaking and tragic because the opioid crisis is so prevalent in those cities that I've worked in that they've reached out to a community effect to have everybody more aware and empowered on how to give this life-saving medication. So again, it's like that thing where you're like, that's awesome that this class exists, but also it's like, oh my God, that's how bad this problem is. So again, I'm going to have to like do a separate episode with Narcan. And uh, I think I, I know how. Anyways, so in the ER, we are working on figuring out how intense the overdose is, what this patient overdosed on, and what interventions do they need medically before we can perhaps clear them uh, to be worked with from a mental health perspective, if that is warranted from what happened. So if it's an accidental drug overdose, I mean, that's still technically an overdose, but it's not necessarily something that somebody did on purpose. It's maybe somebody took too much of their heart medication. But if you took too much of your heart medication because you wanted to try and harm yourself, you're going to involve the mental health perspective because now that's warranted. So it's kind of like that sort of thing where you can have an overdose and it could just be an overdose on a medication or you can have an overdose that happens because of an intentional uh, ideology. So we have all these fancy machines and monitors and things that make ping sounds as well as numerous healthcare professionals and teams to monitor a patient and continue to assess them and stabilize them and figure out what further interventions are needed in order to assist in recovering a patient who has overdosed. But what happens when the hospital resources are 120 miles away, like a physical hospital, and you've set up a wilderness desert ER to serve this population of about 80,000 people? Well, you've got to get creative and you have to be a bit more comfortable with wilderness medicine and knowing about club drugs and overdoses. So, I ended up learning a lot more about club drugs than I initially knew in my whole life. (laughs) Burning Man is somewhat associated with this sort of rave scene, club drugs, that sort of thing. People always say, okay, well, if you went to Burning Man, then that usually means that people are always naked and they're tripping out on who knows what. And I can confirm that uh, that's pretty correct. And club drugs tend to be outside of Burning Man used by teenagers and young adults at bars and nightclubs and concerts and parties. And luckily, Burning Man is the biggest amalgamation of all of those. It's a bar, it's nightclubs, it's concerts, and it's parties. And also amalgamation, I think is my word of the day. Use it, love it, endorse it. Club drugs include the following, at least that we know of, perhaps, GHB, Ruhifnol, ketamine, MDMA, aka ecstasy, methamphetamine, amphetamines, and LSD slash acid. But this only scrapes the surface of club drugs. And to be perfectly honest, although it's a good representation of what we saw at Burning Man in terms of our overdoses, we didn't see necessarily some stuff and we saw more of other stuff. Um, Again, I can't really get into some of those stories just for the sake of HIPAA, but this is a good representation of a lot of stuff we saw. GHB and Ruhifnol, just for background, are both considered depressants and sedatives, and GHB is sometimes prescribed for people uh, who have sleep disorders. 
And it's something that has gone back and forth in terms of how much is uh, therapeutic for these people, but it is something that can be prescribed for people with certain sleep disorders and sleep issues. But for most people, you know GHB and Rehifnol as the date rape drugs. It's kind of a hot topic, I guess, in, in terms of that sort of association. Um, Rehifnol just reminds me of the human centipede. And if you've seen that movie, we need to talk because who's your B? Okay, getting back on track, GHB has long been associated with club drugs since like the 80s and 90s. And it's what we actually saw a lot of people, like a lot of people overdosing on at Burning Man. Uh, GHB is also sometimes referred to as Liquid X, Lollipops, or Liquid E. I hope I sounded like somewhat legit saying all these terms. We also saw people doing ketamine, which I believe is an animal tranquilizer um, in non-overdose settings and actual therapeutic and professional medical professional settings. And I know for a fact, we actually use ketamine in the hospital for procedural sedation as well as pain relief. So that is one of the different drugs that we can give people for uh, pain management. But in the world of club drugs, it has been around for decades. And its allure is that it produces a dissociative state characterized by a sense of detachment from one's physical body and the external world. So when we give it in the hospital, we give it to people who are about to get like a procedure to reset their bone or pain management. And the best thing I can always tell them is to just buckle up because you're about to ride the K train or go down a K hole, if you will. So I have been told by patients that if they look at the ceiling, it seems to be coming out at them and that they just feel outside of their body while also feeling inside of their body. So when we're giving it in the hospital, we're giving it in a therapeutic dose. When you're taking it as a club drug, who knows how much you're taking of it? And a lot of people like that feeling, like that state, so they will sometimes keep taking it. And I just want to ask anybody who's listening, if you have a ketamine story, let me know. I've always been interested in what it's like to go down a K-hole. That is not my playa name. Is it? No. You have to have your playa name bestowed upon you. That's why I'm Smiley Face. It's kind of like a trail name if you've done the AT or PCT or if you know anybody who's done that, it has to be bestowed on you. So I have the playa name of Smiley Face. It's great. MDMA, which is known as Ecstasy, aka E, aka Molly, is considered a standard of club drugs. So a lot of people are familiar with MDMA to a certain extent. And it is popular in the club scene, the club drug scene, because of the sensory effects from the music and the lighting are often highly synergistic with the drug. So there's this psychedelic sort of quality to it. And also with MDMA, it produces this like amphetamine-like energizing effect for some people. And it's sort of like you get to, you know, experience the music around you, but you're also in this heightened state. And there's an appeal to it in that rave culture and that club drugs and the club kid culture. Funny thing, just kind of stepping outside of that, MDMA and ketamine have recently been in a few different journals for their use in depression and a few different other mental health therapies. So it's interesting to see the use of quote unquote club drugs in a medical environment for mental health and it's working 
So that's something you might want to look up, especially ketamine with depression, as well as MDMA with suicidal ideation and people who also are depressed. It's very interesting things. And you're like, what? But it's it's really cool. Anyways, so some users who use MDMA enjoy that feeling of this mass communion from the inhibition reducing effects of the drug so they feel this connection while others use it as a sort of party fuel for all night dancing and and clubbing and it kicks in rather quickly in like 30-ish minutes for some users and it lasts for a couple hours so you know you're rolling on molly y'all that's what that term is you're rolling on molly so you just learned that right now medutainment meth methamphetamine amphetamines those are stimulants so Honestly, we didn't see too many people that came in on meth, but some people who had been using a lot of mixtures of medicines, like ketamine, GHB, alcohol, uh, MDMA, they would take a little bit of an upper. They would take uh, some form of an amphetamine or methamphetamine derivative, and that would keep them going, if you will, because of that stimulate, stimulant effect. LSD, acid, is a psychedelic I always associate it with, and I, I don't mean to be offending to anybody, but I just associate it with like the Grateful Dead, like old hippie generation. But LSD and acid are definitely something that is still very much in effect in younger generations, I can assure you. So MDMA is sometimes taken in conjunction with other psychoactive drugs such as LSD, mushrooms, and ketamine. And yes, we did see patients who took all of that at once and down some booze. And that is an act called candy flipping. So if you ever wanted to use that in casual conversation, go for it. And that's a lot of the times what would bring a lot of our patients in to our critical care area. People had been mixing meds for quite some time. You know, you're out there for seven to 10 days, depending on when you get out to the playa to BRC, to Burning Man. And some of these people just keep going for the whole entire time they're there, like days. And they don't sleep and they keep just doing drugs and supplementing with, with booze. And they're just trying to like kind of keep things at that level that they like in order to experience whatever they like to experience. And they end up doing a little bit too much, going a little bit too hard, and they end up in an overdose. So this mix of numerous club drugs causes this person's body to just be essentially overwhelmed and overloaded, and they crash. This person can't wake up. Now, the thing at Burning Man is that you make connections with people within your camps, and you have people who essentially look out for you. So even if somebody isn't necessarily looking out for a person, you do have people who are constantly patrolling around the city just to make Make sure uh, from an emergency services standpoint that everybody's okay, that nobody's like laying out in the playa unresponsive without having somebody check on them to make sure that they're still conscious and breathing. And if they're not, they immediately can intervene because emergency services has been the person to happen upon them. Now, for most people, though, their campmates are watching out for them. Sometimes, though, people do do things or take things from other people who mean well, but it sets their systems in an overloaded moment. So when a person says, do you want to drink a my drink. They might think it's water and it's been dosed with GHB. It's not necessarily to take advantage of people, although that does happen even at Burning Man. It is a city of 80,000 people and some people are predators. Again, Zendo, amazing people. But the thing with that is that for the most part, people aren't malicious out there and a lot of people just 
go too hard, too fast, too aggressively, and it catches up with them and they end up crashing really, really hard. So they'll, they'll come in with their friend, they'll call for emergency services out there. EMS is actually able to respond on scene and then they bring them to us in the ER. We've had a few patients who their friends came with them and they were able to do this amazing accuracy in terms of what the patient took. And then we also had people who came in and they had written it down on their friend's hands or on their friend's body somewhere, what they took before they actually got transported to us. So people came in and we were like, oh, they actually kind of like have their little list right there written on them. But whatever you can do to help us out, they were willing to do that. And it was fantastic and invaluable to us in terms of caring for that person who is now in this unconscious, unresponsive state. What happens though, in terms of the resources you can use because you're limited? How do you manage an overdose in the desert? Coming back around to that question. Well, luckily we didn't have things like heroin per se to deal with. We did do Narcan on some people just because you never know. People can be mixing prescription pills um, with different things. So, but heroin wasn't really like something people did on the playa, honestly, which is something you more commonly see in those hospital settings of overdoses. What we had to do was doing a lot of symptom management and monitoring people and monitoring their vitals and monitoring to see if they would take a breath after not breathing regularly with their regular breathing pattern, we would watch their chest rise and fall because if it got to this level of concern, that's when we would have to decide to intubate. But it was weird because you had to become comfortable with watching these patients who were not waking up. GHB overdoses, which is what we commonly saw, usually wore off in about three to four hours. And so you would watch these patients on the monitors. They were all monitored very closely. There was essentially almost uh, a level of one-on-one care in terms of making sure that everybody could see this patient in the zone you were working with. You had yourself as the nurse, you had a medic with you, and you also had a doctor. So it was, everybody was in those zones. And so if you had an overdose patient, somebody had eyes on them. And you are looking to see if this person's able to breathe on their own. And if they weren't without a little bit of support, we were able to put in airway support devices, which goes into a little bit of more technical things. But if you're familiar with it, we placed a lot of OPAs and NPAs in people. And we just watch them. We would watch them for three to four hours and people would wake up. They would, the drug would work its way out of their system and we would just watch them. Now, I said before that in the ER, in the hospital setting, you call poison control. We didn't necessarily have to do that out in a remote setting. We had a medical director on site and there were protocols that are different when you're working in a limited resource hospital ER clinic of sorts. And so you didn't necessarily need to call poison control because you had numerous people who had reported that a person took this, this, and this, and the medical director had protocols in place for monitoring patients who took X, Y, and Z. So (laughs) X. This was something that, you know, like I said, is unlike anything else I've ever worked in. Side note, amazing, amazing amount of concern for fellow burners from their campmates when a person came in with an overdose, when they were um, unresponsive, unconscious. They wouldn't leave their friend's side or they would trade off with somebody to make sure that their friend didn't wake up and they weren't alone and they didn't wake up disoriented in waking up at the hospital. And it doesn't always happen like that in hospital settings. Some people wake up 
extremely disoriented. Um, some people wake up alone in terms of not having their friend there. Obviously, they have us as medical professionals who are there, but sometimes when you're waking up out of an overdose, it helps to see a familiar face in order to know that you're you're all right, you're here, you're existing, and there's somebody here that you can have a familiarity with. So that happened a lot where burners would stay with their friends, stay with their campmates, stay with their family. And like I said, it's unlike anything that I can ever put into words. I'm hoping I am doing a good job. But if you've been to Burning Man, you get what I'm saying. If you haven't been to Burning Man, this might not make any sense. So I hope it makes sense, but it probably doesn't. A lot of people did make full recoveries after three to four hours. The drug would work its way out. They woke up. They were a little bit thirsty. A lot of times, a lot of people woke up very thirsty and they were able to walk out after having been brought in by ambulance and needing assistance in just maintaining their own breathing patterns. So it was a lesson in less is more sometimes with certain cases. And these patients, they came back and they would gift us, gift the nurses, gift the doctors, gift the techs with various items such as full bottles of wine, full bottles of rum. I'm telling you this because I happen to receive gifts from patients that were wine and rum. Um, my colleagues also got similar gifts and it was just this appreciation for healthcare that is highly, highly unique. But like I said before, if you're looking for more specific stories from Burning Man, you will get them, but you will not realize it over the course of future episodes. It's an experience if you are at all interested as a healthcare provider in volunteering or in working the event, feel free to reach out to me and I can get you some resources to look out for when they open that back up for people. And I will be posting in the show notes a little bit more information about how an ER is set up in the desert. So what I am going to do in order to round out this episode is revive an old favorite in order to wrap it up. So you know it, you love it, you want some more of it. It's you got what stuck where. So I give you four clues. You guess the item that got stuck by tweeting to me at people are wild on Twitter. Or you can email me, peoplearewildpod at gmail.com. And the person who is most correct first wins some swag, bragging rights, and a great conversation starter on a Tinder date or on date night. You're welcome. So clue one, the person in question had initially come to the hospital due to him coughing up blood. Clue two, the item was stuck inside this gentleman for about two years yes, two years, before it became an issue. Clue three, it probably was a shock that he could not have it his way, and after the removal of the item from his lung, he was probably loving it. Clue four, it is unclear if after the item was removed, if that whenever the man in question was spooning with his wife, well, if it led to something else. So there you have it. There is some subtle hints and not so subtle hints about the you got what stuck where item for this week. So go ahead, hit me with your best shot in terms of a guess as to what you think got stuck and you might win. So thank you so much for listening, liking, subscribing, reviewing, telling your friends, telling your enemies, telling anyone about this little podcast. I sincerely and truly mean it when I say thank you. And if I were Alanis Morissette, you ought to know. But I could also sing the thank you but I'm not, so I will spare you that. So instead, let me just say to believe in the good, practice random acts of kindness, 
and love and dust. Are your friends tired of hearing you talk about serial killers? While you're at a party, have you randomly blurted out the odds of a person being murdered by a complete stranger? Does your Hulu or Netflix only recommend documentaries on true crime? If you have answered yes to one or more of these questions, you may have a problem. And so do we. That's why we started our true crime podcast. We are the hosts, Cam and Jen. We're lifelong best friends that love to talk about all things true crime. So we decided to start our own podcast, hoping to find others that share our passion. You can find us on OurTrueCrimePodcast.com, or you can download new episodes of Our True Crime Podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, or any other places you download podcasts. See you on Wednesdays. Hey, Haley, guess where I'm taking you this weekend? Burning Man! It's this awesome celebration where they burn this huge wooden man. It's all about life, love, and the power of community. No, it's all about a bunch of naked morons drinking and doing lots of drugs. What are we, 12?